In our time of prayer this morning, David nailed down Manutha and corrected Damon. And there's some kind of poetic justice in that, right, Damon? All right, middle schoolers, high schoolers. When I say words like Chattanooga Christian, Signal Mountain Middle High School, see, it's happening. I just got a grimace from somebody. Baylor, Macaulay, East Ridge, Hickson. What comes to your mind? What if I said band, football, soccer, physics club, if there is such thing? I was not smart enough to get into the physics club if there is such thing. As I say these things, if I allowed our children to talk, what they would do is even the name of certain schools, they would start to give you the stereotypes of those schools. And then as we started talking about other things and activities, they would start to give you stereotypes of those activities. We are a people, we are a people that likes to put other people and ourselves into groups and identify with those certain groups. Imagine this, and I think this is true, by the way. Imagine if I were to tell you that uh, this evening at 9 o'clock, you could get free bagels at Panera Bread. And that many of you flocked to Panera Bread to get the free bagels, only to find out that the reality of that situation is that the bagels that were being given out at Panera Bread at 9 o'clock were being given to homeless people who did not have enough to eat and they were, instead of letting the food spoil, they were giving it away, what would you do? Would you be as excited about getting your bagel or would all of a sudden, would you put yourself in a category and the people that you were waiting in line with, would you put in a category? What would you do? We are consumed with putting people in categories. If we were to be honest with ourselves, how often in these days do you meet someone new and do you begin to talk to them and the first thought in your head is, is he or she a Republican, a Democrat, a conservative, a progressive? Where do they fit? You may even ask questions to try to figure that out. There are many, many, many categories that we like to think through and to try to fit people into. And I was reminded on Monday of this week as I went to a pastor's conference at a friend of mine, Pastor Eddie Jack's church, as he got up and began this conference. He said something very simple, very, very simple. And it just set my week in the right place. And he said this. He got up, there were about 40 pastors or so, and all he said was this, isn't it wonderful to be saved? And I would ask you that this morning. Isn't it wonderful to be saved? Isn't it wonderful to know that God sent His Son, Jesus, and He redeemed sinners like us? That Jesus shed his life on that cross so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Isn't it wonderful to be saved?
The world wants us to live by these labels. The world wants us to live in these tribes. And when Jesus comes along, he messes with these labels. When we devote our lives to Christ, when we cry out to him and when we're saved, it messes with our identity. And as we look at this text this morning, this text is all about Jesus messing with folks identity. As we've been going along through Mark, there's been this subtle thing that Mark has been doing. Mark, as he writes, I'm just amazed as I've been studying this book. Mark does all these little subtle things that are just mind blowing. And one of the things that he's done up until the past couple of chapters that we've read is that he has subtly laid out this idea that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And there was this fascinating story a couple of months ago of the demoniac. Jesus in Gentile territory in this demoniac and Jesus heals this man, saves this man, spends time teaching this man and then tells him most of the places that we have Mark recorded Jesus doing miracles. He says, don't tell anybody. He tells this man, you go to the Gentile, your Gentile neighbors and tell them about me. And it's, it's almost as if there's just this subtle message that Mark is bringing in. But then as we got to chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, Mark is taking a megaphone and he is telling us loud and clear that Jesus is doing something amazing among the Gentiles and it is messing with people's minds. That at the beginning of chapter 7, we went, the Pharisees were there and we went from unclean hands to unclean people. And that Jesus in his dialogue there uh, with the Pharisees is talking about what really defiles a man. And then Jesus goes and we have this account of this woman who is a Gentile. And I want you to listen again to this interaction with Jesus and this Gentile woman in chapter 7, verse 26. Now, a, now the woman, notice how Mark writes this, now the woman was a Gentile. Of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. And Jesus here is messing with this woman's identity. And he is playing in on this identity of Gentiles and Jews. And he heals her daughter. And then he heals a, a deaf and mute Gentile. And here in this text, here in this text, Jesus is going to feed 4,000 people who we assume most of them are Gentiles. There is something that Mark is shouting at us this morning. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, In those days when there was again a large crowd, and Matthew's account of this starts the same way, and the same grouping of things are there together. And the reason that the gospel writers are saying in those days is they're signifying that Jesus was still in this Gentile territory. And they are signifying that there's going to be a confrontation and we need to pay attention to this confrontation. See, the Jews were the promised children of God. All the promises of God were given to the Jewish people through Abraham. 
We remember this, right? Father Abraham, that God said, I am going to bless you. I'm going to create a nation in and through you. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we learn that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to come to the Jewish people in this Jewish line. And so what had happened is that the Jewish people, there were in their minds, in their philosophy, in their religion, in their thought, in their ethics, there were two groups of people. There were the promised children of God, of Israel, the Jews, and then everybody else, which I would assume is most of us, Gentiles. And we are considered dirty, unclean, unworthy outsiders. As we get into this text, this was their identity according to the Jewish people, especially people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was the identity of this people. And it is mind-blowing that Jesus was going and ministering to them and that He would dare say that He was the Messiah while He was doing this. Let's look again at verses 1-10. through 10. In those days there was again a large crowd. They had nothing to eat. Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with Me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him and said, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served the people. And they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And when they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces, about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. (laughs) How amazing is this account? It's interesting to me that some scholars, this is familiar, right? The feeding of the 5,000, there's many similarities. And some scholars want to say, oh, wait a minute, this is just a mistake that this was really all one account and it was just kind of done over again here in the Gospel. And that's silly. That's a silly thought. Although there are many similarities, there are so many differences. And I'm not going to take the time this morning to categorize all of them. But the thing that that puts the nail in the coffin to the idea that this is two separate accounts is verses 19 and 20. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, listen to this. He says, when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were full of broken pieces? And they said 12. When I broke the seven for 4,000, how many large baskets? Seven. Very clear, Mark is pointing us to, Jesus is saying that these are two separate events. And I think there is huge significance because what I want you to see is that the first time we had Jesus in the Jewish territory, and he saw the people running, and he had compassion because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we talked about the the prophecy that was there of, of Jesus being the shepherd, the Messiah of the people. And here again, in Gentile territory, in Gentile territory, we have Jesus feeding once again. And maybe what's even more scandalous to the Pharisees, and maybe it's a point that I think that we sometimes miss, is look again in verse 2. Why were the people hungry? 
They were hungry because they had been there for three days as Jesus was feeding them. Jesus was teaching them. And I want to ask you, what in the world do you think Jesus was saying to them? I think we all know, and I think it's Mark's point, that what Jesus was saying, what he was proclaiming is that the gospel of God had come to the Gentiles. The reality here is massive. That the kingdom that Jesus is building is not reserved for one kind and one group of people, but the kingdom that our Lord Jesus Christ is building is made up of all peoples. And we see this all throughout the Scripture, don't we? In Genesis chapter 12, when God was setting apart Abraham, at the end of that commission, He said, all families will be blessed through you. In the book of Revelation, we read that every tongue and tribe will be seated around the throne of God. In Galatians 3.28, we see what the cross does in a person's life where Paul says, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, and there is no free. That all are one in Christ. So what I want you to see and what I think Mark wants you to see this morning is that Jesus is so great. He's so great that He can change your identity. And you know, we're not, we have to say this in the world that we're currently living in. We're not meaning that there's no such thing as male and female What we're meaning is the most important thing about you this morning is whether or not Jesus Christ is your Savior. And He informs you how to be a man of God, a woman of God, a child of God. But we love our worldly identification, don't we? We love our tribes. I think we find a lot of comfort in the groups we associate with. I think in some of these groups we associate with, we find power, we find companionship, we get kind of a pecking order of kind of who we are. I heard a quote not too long ago on social media, and I forget the guy's name, I didn't know him, so I don't know anything about him, but I just want to read you the quote, and it just hit me like a dagger. And I think it speaks to what's going on in this text. And that's this. One of the things that we've seen in our day and age. Is that there are many, many people. That are willing to leave their church. Because of politics. But they're not willing to leave politics. Because of the church. And one of the things that's been my worry in our day and age, it's just grown to a fever pitch, is this whole idea, and you've heard me say it before, that I think for many, many, many Christians, 
The thing that is driving the way we read our Bibles is our politics and our opinions about our worldview versus the Bible being what shapes our politics and worldview. And you may this morning say, Lewis, wait a minute, you're meddling. Okay, guilty. You may say this morning, Lewis, you're going outside of the text and I want to say not so fast. Let's look at verses 11 through 13. Here come the Pharisees. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And one of the things that I want you to think about that's fascinating Isn't there something fascinating about these Pharisees coming to Jesus and asking for a sign? Are they not seeing the miracles that he's doing? Of course they're seeing the miracles that he's doing. What do they say about the miracles that Jesus is doing? What does Mark tell us that the Pharisees are saying about the clear miracles they are seeing Jesus doing? They They are seeing the miracle and they're saying, Satan is the one who's empowered you to do this. And so as Jesus is saying that there is no sign that I'm giving to this generation, what Jesus is saying is you have seen the miracles. There is nothing I can do that's going to convince you because your heart is hardened. And and one of the things that we see, the reason that Jesus is saying that their heart is hardened is because they have an agenda. They have an idea of who Jesus should be and what he should look like. And they are unwilling To see Jesus for who he is and unwilling to bow their knee to him. And in fact, in fact, the essence we get from the text is that the Pharisees really want Jesus to do their bidding and want him to bow their knee to them. Isn't it interesting in John chapter three, when we get Nicodemus, this Pharisee that's interested in Jesus, it says that he came to him when? At night. Why did this Pharisee come to Jesus at night? Because he couldn't be identified with Jesus during the day. It was too costly. Notice again in verse 15. We're going to look at this verse a little more later. But notice as Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he was giving them orders saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In Matthew, it doesn't say the leaven of Herod. In Matthew, it says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the reality is that when it says Herod here, it's talking about the Herodians or the Sadducees. It's saying the same things. And so one of the things that we see in the text is that as Jesus is talking here and as Jesus is going after the Pharisees and their identity and their hardness of heart. And as he comes back and he warns his disciples against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is combining these two groups and we see this reality of these two religious groups who are enemies of one another, who have a common enemy in Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't agree on things religiously. They were doctrinally far apart. They didn't agree on things practically. They did things drastically different. They didn't agree philosophically. These folks were far apart. They were enemies, but they agreed on one thing. And that was this man, Jesus, was dangerous to their political agenda. 
The Pharisees, as we all know, were a people who wanted the Messiah to come and help release them from the tyranny of Rome. We could put a current day political label on that, couldn't we? The Sadducees were a people that were very cozy with the government and wanted their religion to work within the confines of the government. And and so they were wanting Jesus to come along and to help, or the Messiah to come along and help in their cause as well. And Jesus is coming along and saying, this is not who I am. This is not the kind of kingdom that I am building. For them to follow Jesus, to believe in a sign, to change their identity, meant that it changed everything about them and they just were not willing to do that. And there's a third group in this text. So one way you could look at this text is that you have the the Gentiles... And as Jesus was meeting with the Gentiles, that he was calling them to salvation. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's rebuking this group. And then the third group that we see in this text are the disciples. And the disciples, what we see in this text, and we see it often in uh, the Gospels, is that they are a people, they're a group of people that are being formed. They're being discipled, as you will. They're being taught. And I want you to notice as we see this, it's obvious in our text, and we see that they're being formed because of this interaction, this miscommunication, this folly. Listen to verse 14 through 21 again. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss one another the fact that they had no bread. This confusion, this folly of what in the world's going on. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Notice how he is forming them. He's essentially saying, open up your eyes, open up your ears, understand. Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And you do not remember. When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? Twelve. When I broke the seven for 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said seven. And he was saying, do you not yet understand? These men are being formed. They're in this process. And what he is telling them is that you're missing the point. It's not about bread. It's not about bread. There's a metaphor And that they're missing the metaphor. Remember, John told us in in his account of the feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, Jesus taught the disciples and he said to them, it's not about physical bread. What does he say? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. My followers get me and they will never hunger again. He's not talking about physical hunger. He's talking about something much greater than that. 
He is saying that your union with me, your relationship with me, so changes everything that it should be what defines you. Because of me, your sin is taken away. You no longer are under the guilt. You have a restored relationship with God. You have a hope. You have a future. And you have a life to live to glorify God while you are still here. I want you to see what's being said. I want to jump back for a moment because I want you to see a trend here that has just meant a lot to me. Jump back to chapter 7. Again, the Seraphonician woman. Look at verse 28 again. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And what I want to ask you is, did Jesus give this lady the scraps? Did He give her the leftover? Did He give her the crumbs that she was asking for? And He said to her, Because of this go, the demon has gone from your daughter. Brothers and sisters, she didn't get scraps. Notice in our text, look again at verse 4. Jesus with these Gentiles. And the disciples answered him and said, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And Jesus took this little meager meal and notice what happens in verse 8 again. And they ate and they were what? Satisfied. Jesus doesn't give his children scraps. And this is the point he was driving home to his disciples. Look again at verse 19 and 20. When Jesus tells them, remember when I broke the five loaves, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. And you remember what we said at that point, that this was intentional. This just wasn't happenstance. This wasn't just a coincidence that what happened is in the leftovers, what happened is that these disciples got their own basket, their own meal. And you may say, yeah, Lewis, well, what in the world is the significance of seven? And what's fascinating in the text is that the word for basket is different when it's talking about seven and when it's talking about twelve. Twelve would have been a little basket. Seven would have been a big basket. It's the same word used when Paul was let down over the wall. It's the same word used. And what Jesus is saying is that disciples, you're not getting scraps. You're getting more than enough. Do you believe that? It's not just Panera Bread. I think probably other bakeries around town do this thing where the leftover bread gets given to um, people in need, homeless people. In fact, the secret of our bagel Sunday is is that um, Einstein Bagels gives their leftover bagels to churches and other organizations. Let's just say you're a homeless person for a minute. You were lining up at one of these bakeries and they said, no, 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 wait a minute. You know, we're not going to do this anymore. Maybe you're a little bit devastated and you're like, "Ah, I I so look forward to those bagels. Yes, they were a little stale. They may have been a little, but you know. 
And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We want you to come tomorrow morning at 7 in the morning because that's when the bagels first come out of the oven and we want you to have the best. Isn't that what our God does for us? That Jesus is standing there and saying, I am the bread of life. You have me. This is so great. It should change everything about us. But you see, we're often tempted. I don't know if you've ever eaten anything and gotten food poisoning. But when I was dating Casey, uh, she came over, uh, she came to, we were in college, came to my parents' house in Chattanooga uh, one New Year's Eve, and um, I, don't, I don't even think we had any plans. We were going to hang out with my parents, and we went to the mall, and I even think she probably, this, this is our relationship, she probably even back then dating said, ah, oh, Lewis, I don't know how long that food's been laying out there, but it looks so good in the mall. Looked so good. It tasted good, too. But I spent the whole night, missed the whole party, missed the whole shebang with food poisoning. Did you see the warning in our text? Where Jesus says to his disciples, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and watch out for the leaven of Herod. Leaven is just kind of really another word for yeast. It's an additive that when it's added to the contents of bread, it makes it rise. But in the New Testament, this word leaven is often used as kind of a foreign evil substance that can be put into something that pollutes it. And here Jesus is saying, watch out for this leaven. And I think we don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about, but I think we know enough to know this. Watch out for anything that tells you, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, watch out for anything that tells you that Jesus is not enough. Watch out for anything that gives you the wrong idea about who this Jesus is. Watch out for anything in your life that would tempt you to use Jesus to promote your own agenda. Or watch out for anything that would push you away from Christ. Because you feel like it's more important than what Jesus has for you. H.B. Charles, who was the man that was giving the, the main speaker in the pastor's conference I was at this week, said this. We need another news source. And what he was talking about was that we're so inundated with our news sources that we lose track of the main thing and H.B. was saying, we need another news source, and that's the Word of God. So instead, instead of feasting on the words of Christ, how many of us are spending most of our time feasting on 
podcast, news, media. How many of us would say that our life is characterized by those things dominating our diet? Instead of looking at the scriptures and looking at Christ and meditating on him and thinking through what it means to reflect him in our lives and to live out the call of Christ in our life. How many of us. Are more concerned about athletes, actors, politicians. And this is what's filling our plate. You see. There's an old adage that I think is true. And I think it's true when it comes to our spiritual life. And that is this. You are what you eat. And some of you this morning. You may be here. And you may be in the position of these Gentiles. And you do not have a relationship with Jesus. And the message that you need to hear from the gospel this morning. Is come and eat. Some of you may be in here and when we're talking about, when you read about the Pharisees here in this gospel, that there's this form of godliness that's not true godliness. And you may for the first time be saying, I've never tasted that. Jesus is asking you this morning, come and eat. And for many of us who are being formed this morning, Jesus is saying, beware. And I think if the sovereign king of the universe is telling us to beware, we should beware. He's saying, beware. Eat the right thing. And maybe all of us this morning. And this is one of the greatest things I think about being a Christian. Maybe all of us this morning, if we were to truly look around this city, if we were to truly make being knowing and being known by Jesus the most important thing about us, we'd be surprised at who's at the table eating with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are building your church. You're doing it. And what we are going to learn next week is that the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. God, I pray that we would know you and be satisfied in you. God, I pray your love and your grace and your mercy and your truth would be what describes us. And that we could say with Paul, when Christ, who is your life, appears. God, we thank you for your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. This morning, it is fitting...